Okay, friends, welcome back to the next episode of the Aurelius podcast. Zach Naylor here, CEO and co-founder at Aurelius, and your host with the Aurelius podcast. This time around, we have Erica Hall, co-founder of Mule Design and author of Just Enough Research. Let me just say, it was awesome. I know I say that every time, but every time it just keeps being true. So Erica and I covered a pretty wide range of topics and yet still had the opportunity to dig really deep in on a few that I think are really important uh, right now in our industry. We talked about the general startup and technology culture, some of its problems and how we can see the forest for the trees there and not get sucked in. Naturally, we spoke at great length about user research, how to do it, how to get people on board with it and what you learn from users to make better informed decisions every day. And of course, why some companies still aren't doing it or as much of it as they should and how we can help turn the tide on that front. Finally, we really honed in on talking about having and creating shared goals with our coworkers and stakeholders to not only boost creativity and collaboration, but make your job much easier. This fits in with a definite theme recently of design and its need to understand and speak the language of business better if we are to have a true impact and value that we can. And I just want to be fair and give you a warning that this one has some swear words sprinkled throughout, so if you're listening around sensitive ears or without headphones, you might want to pay attention there. Finally, I've got an exciting announcement that at the time we will have released this episode, we will have also launched publicly Aurelius, the user research and insights platform for folks just like you, design and product teams. So come on over to our website, check it out, sign up for our 14-day free trial. I would love to hear what you think. Okay, so with that, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 17 with Erica Hall, co-founder of Mule Design and author of Just Enough Research. Erica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. We're very pleased to have you. And uh, as we were discussing a little bit kind of before we got into the episode, we've been, Erica and I have been working hard to make this time happen and uh, tonight's the night. And so we're excited to be able to chat with her about research, design, uh, doing great things. So cool. Fantastic. Yeah. So well, let's actually just kick it off. I expect most people who are listening to our episode already know who you are, but for those who don't, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about you know the work you're doing now and kind of what's top of mind to you. Wow. Um, I would say the thing that's really top of mind is that we're, I think, coming off this amazing uh, burst of a world-changing product and service development, you know, in the last 10 years with uh, the iPhone and everything going mobile and social media uh, exploding. And I think everybody's just taking a moment to say, what have we wrought? in the world. And so I'd say that's that's really top of mind because we're at a place where we've exhibited what you might consider a lot of technical and design proficiency. And, uh, and it's gotten us to maybe some places that we don't want to be in society. You know, people are talking about uh, being addicted to the internet and um, having access to all information means that you have access to information of all levels of quality. And so what we're really thinking about right now is um, how to help people uh, use, uh, use research and design to very intentionally uh, create products and systems that uh, are maybe more balanced in terms of offering a lot of value to the customer, getting a lot of value for the business, and maybe also creating a more positive value in society. You know, I think all of that is possible with some intention. And I think we're at a great moment to be having that conversation. That is a fantastic answer. And uh, I love the fact that we just went head first into it on let's tackle all the big shit right off the bat. I love it. Um, okay, so a couple things that I kind of thinking of and reacting to as you're saying that the the first thing I was going to ask you, which you already touched on is, okay, well, how does research help us do that? And, and you kind of led into that. And I know we'll go into that more. My question is, I can imagine somebody sitting here uh, listening to the podcast going, okay, well, you know, we're doing pretty decent design work. We're doing research work. But how in the world would I start 
moving the needle on that kind of impact uh, at my job tomorrow? Where's the first place I should start? Mm -hmm. I, I would say um, the first place to start is uh, you know asking the really really basic questions, which are like, uh, what's our goal? Why are we doing what we're doing? And how do we know we're successful? And who benefits? And I think those are questions that you can ask uh, at any point in the process. Because I think sometimes uh, people hold back from asking questions. And that's really the sort of fundamental issue with research uh, and design is a lot of times uh, design is defined as creating things, creating artifacts. And I was just having a conversation about this earlier, where there's you know the part of design that's creative and the part of design that's uh, a critique. And the critique is just as necessary and you need sort of both of those in balance, right? You need to make something and you need to criticize it according to all these uh, principles and questions. And so anytime you're confronted with any sort of decision or recommended course of action, you say, well, if we, uh, if we do it like this, who benefits from it? And mm -hmm. how do we know they benefit? And is that our intention? Because, you know, Jared Spool, who I know you've had on the podcast, he sure. has this great, this great definition of design that I quote a lot, design is the rendering of intent. Yeah. And so you wanna make sure that you're actually being intentional. And that's the whole point of doing things like gathering evidence, doing research, asking questions, is to make sure you're not doing things by accident, which is the, the way a lot of things happen. Like, oh, we just thought we'd try it. You know, that's the whole move fast and break things. It's like, yeah. it doesn't matter what the implications are, as long as we're making something, <laughs> we're making something. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Hold up. You know, you can take a breath and say, how do we know that we're making the right thing? Yo, my goodness, you are speaking my language. You're playing my tune. <laughs> um, and I promise. So anybody who's been listening to the episodes like knows that <laughs> I knows probably already why I love that answer, because I harp on this all the time. We <laughs> actually say this as to what we do in Aurelius is we help you make the right decisions to build mm -hmm. the right things, not just make stuff. Um, I also love the fact that in your answer, the first place you went to is setting up goals. It's mm -hmm. not it's not necessarily sexy work, but the thing is, is like, then you talk about like that rendering of intent. Um, you know, if you don't know what your intent is, anything goes. Uh, right. You know, and so I gave, I gave a talk recently where it was pretty centrally focused around like setting up those goals because it sets up your success for selling people on your ideas, making mm -hmm. sure you're asking the right questions, doing the right research, figuring out the right things. Uh, because the reality of it is uh, I, I take personal beef with the whole move fast and break things or fail fast and fail often because those are goals. And yeah. if your goal is to fail fast and fail often, I can promise you, you'll probably meet that goal. <laughs> if, if your goal is to move fast and break things, I can promise you, you'll probably meet that goal. But that's not actually what you want to do, right? You want to learn and hence use a research, right? Exactly, unless that's not what you want. Because a lot of times, especially, and this is something I've been talking to a lot of people about a lot lately, you know, I'm in San Francisco, which is now synonymous with Silicon Valley somehow. And um, <clears throat> and so a lot of times it really seems like a growth at all costs mentality. And, you know, you have their people now whose job is called growth hacker and everybody's like growth, growth, growth. And it's like you say, if, if that's your goal, if it's growth at any costs, that creates cover for a lot of bad acting, you know, like we see at Uber and, mm. you know, it was Uber was great in the beginning because you know, it was really hard. It was like the taxis were really crappy in San Francisco before Uber came along and now they're better. And now I still take taxis. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cause they're really dependable now and there's an app. And so Uber's done that. But, but I think a, a lot of people who are in this high growth, uh, early stage capitalism mindset, it, it feels more exciting. It's like what you said, it's not like there are all these things that you should do, like setting goals and being very intentional that might lead to more success. But if what you want is this dramatic story and you want your company to have a billion dollar valuation, 
that is outside of any actual goal you have for your customers or your product or the world. You have this like capitalism goal and you have this like, I'm a cowboy goal. And if you don't have that level of drama or if you aren't like working that hard or grinding that hard, you know, there are always stories about like, oh, you know, we, we provide all the meals, people are working so hard. I think one of the reasons uh, there's so much of a culture of being at work all the time is because that way you don't have to ask what you're doing or how you might do less of it. Like it'd be fantastic if we had more of the culture like uh, they're starting uh, to really work on in Scandinavia about like the six hour workday. Cause yeah. I bet no one around here is putting in more than six hours of productive activity at their organization. And so I really think it's not just that these are things that you have to do to be innovative. I think that that's a choice that people are making because that's a culture people want to be a part of because it sounds more exciting. Because really, when you look at the physical actions that we're doing, at the end of the day, you're sitting there typing. Like yeah. no matter what your job is, you're sitting there typing and moving your mouse. If you're a designer, if you're an engineer, if you're an architect, if you're a customer service person, like we used to do wildly different things with our with our bodies depending on our job. And now everybody's sitting there typing. And so I think a lot of this culture is a way to make that all more exciting. I could not agree anymore with, I think nearly, and not nearly, I think everything you just said, I could not agree anymore with. Uh, it's romanticized. It's it's uh it is a culture that we've built to say if you're part of this you're 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 part of some sort of elite or exclusive or uh or you know distinctly separate group that you should want to identify with and this is why and i'm sure you're already familiar with these with these guys over at Basecamp, uh formerly 37 signals right and this is the kind of thing they talk about and uh, it's funny too because I've been listening. I'm so podcaster listening to their podcast uh, okay. a lot recently because a lot of people actually compare us to them. I don't think it's a fair comparison. I have a, a huge admiration for those guys, but because we don't try to do more, we try to do better. Uh, yeah, and so I think it's I think it's even a stretch to say you're getting six hours of solid work in a day. Mm -hmm. I I would say you're lucky if you're getting four or five. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reality of it is like, you should have that space to screw around and figure out what the right things are. Yeah. You, you don't need more time. You don't need more stuff. You need better time. You need higher quality stuff, higher quality action. Yeah, absolutely. And design is a thing like we talk about this all the time. Design doesn't happen at your desk. Design happens when you're out walking around looking at people. Yeah. Uh, this is why I think um, I have a, a lot of issues with uh, how uh, startups around here, you know, they cater very luxurious lunches. And um, and I think that sends a, a not completely productive message, right? That, oh, the best thing you can do during this time is stay with all your coworkers and eat this luxurious meal as opposed to going out like, you talk about field research, just walking around your city at lunchtime, looking at people is an amazing opportunity for fresh air, you know, getting some new ideas, having interactions and just seeing how other people live their lives. And I think that contributes to a better quality product. But it's hard to argue with you go to these companies, you know, I go there, I, I meet my friends, I eat the free lunch. <laughs> and, uh, but I think like, you know, I think this is a, it's a missed opportunity that is also really damaging the local restaurant scene, right? So there are all these unfortunate effects with this benefit that is now an expectation in a lot of these companies. Yeah, no, forcing the issue and kind of keeping heads down on that is actually the worst way to, uh, to spark creativity. It would, I think it caused the opposite. I mean, I, I, I would not label myself as one of the best designers around by any stretch, but what I would say is any 90% of the best ideas I've ever had have come when I was not actually at my desk or any some right. designated place looking to do something. In fact, it's usually when I need to slow down before a red light so I can send myself an email about something or I'm in some place that's completely inopportune yeah. uh, you know, to actually, to actually put that down and, and act on it. Um, Okay, so this this theme and this topic is awesome, and you have a particular passion on user research and understanding people and helping us connect the dots so that we can make decisions 
on their behalf that also benefit business. Mm-hmm. What does that all mean, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, well, I mean, what that what that means is you can't, you know, you can't design for people without understanding people. And I feel like uh, this this is something that industry wide, more businesses are coming to uh, embrace. I would say. But still, everyone continues to to look for like the one method or just tell me the one thing I can do that can give me these magical insights. Yeah. And for a long time, the objection to uh, to doing user research I heard, especially from entrepreneurs, was, oh, I don't want customers to tell me what to do. But, you know, and I'm, I'm sure this is something you're really familiar with with your business, but Research doesn't tell you what to do. And if you treat it like that, you will be sorely disappointed. All it does is it gives you information that hopefully yields insights that you can just add into your process. Like if you're, um, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're at an established organization or whether you're just trying to figure out if there's a product that the world needs that you should be designing, uh, the first step is just to be better informed. And then what you do with that information is entirely like up to you. Yeah. But but I don't understand. Like I have a really well, I, I, I know I kind of know why it happens, but there there's seems to be such a stigma um, in business about looking outside yourself for information. Like we still have this idea that if you're really good at what you do you have all the answers inside you, you have all the knowledge, and that's what makes you a better designer or a better business leader than somebody else that you know everything. But I try to know as little as possible. <laughs> that's what the cloud is for, you know, that's what the <laughs> internet is for. The knowledge stays in the cloud, not in my head. My yeah. head is for processing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for analyzing and, and thinking about things, but but having answers or storing information is a stupid use of my brain, especially because whatever you know, whatever you think you learned, that'll be that'll change tomorrow. So you can't just like ask a question, get an answer, and be done. And I think that's again the way people treat this. Like, oh, I've learned about my customers. Oh, I've learned about my competition. Done learning. Time for making. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how it works because everything is changing just all the time. So you have to keep looking outside yourself. And it's not a, a burden unless you it's not incorporated into your process. If your process is, oh, I keep making, I keep sitting at my keyboard and typing and moving my mouse and anything that takes me away from that, I, I feel like I'm slacking. If you're in that culture, then you're not in a learning culture. Right, right. Well, I love the fact that you started at the, uh, at least what I would consider the very human part of that. Cause so, so kind of where you came off uh, with that response was there's a lot of people, entrepreneurs or otherwise, people, human beings mm-hmm. who say, I don't want somebody to tell me what to do or um, I want to feel like I know all of that. Now, the interesting thing to me about that is that while that might be the outward projection, all mm-hmm. of us are still human beings. And interestingly enough, the research and the data tells us that all of us really just want to feel loved, right? I mean, yeah. I'm taking this down to like the basic building blocks <laughs> of humanity because uh, yeah. I, I think it's relevant based on what you said. Uh-huh. And as part of that, as somebody who works in business, we just want to feel confident that we're uh-huh. doing the right things. So interestingly enough, you know, the things that we're doing in research are really, they're providing that confidence. You said it yourself, informed decisions, which I love. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that I love as well. Um, I, again, the same talk that I gave recently when, so I was talking about like selling your ideas and I specifically made it a point to, sell, to, talk, to touch on how do you sell user research? Mm-hmm. And the point that I made there was that you're not selling user research, you're selling confidence Mm-hmm. And every I, I have yet to meet a single business person who doesn't want to feel more confident in the decision they're making mm-hmm. because somewhere oh, uh, their ass absolutely. is on the line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that, I think that's a great way to put it because especially uh, 
when you're talking about something qualitative, which you know, makes um, managers really uncomfortable, right? They just want a number. And you're like, well, how do I, how do I know if I have enough information? Because if you're looking at your dashboard and you have numbers, you're like, okay, I can, I can look at a number and that feels somehow um, more sciencey or more dependable. Mm -hmm. And it really is a matter of, you know, you know, when you've done your qualitative research, if you feel like you have confidence in your decision. And, um, and it's so, it's so funny that, that we special case this in our design work, because the, the analogy I always use is uh, if you take somebody who's, who's going to buy a new car, you know, you take a CEO of a company and they're going to buy a new car, uh, which will cost even a really nice car, even if you're going to spend a hundred grand on a car and get a nice Tesla, right? They will do their research and they will not, it's not like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to get the car uh, that this other guy's driving and be, and be done with it. Maybe some people will, but you're like, okay, it's a million dollar project. It's a $10 million project. And all of a sudden, oh, why should we do research? We've hired like these genius <laughs> designers. But no, if you're gonna buy a car for yourself, you're gonna ask your friends what they drive. You're gonna really think hard about, well, where do I go? How do I drive? How do I want people to think about me? And you'll do all of the things that would be part of product research for yourself. But then you're like, oh no, no, we don't wanna waste time doing research, which to me is crazy. Drips with irony. I, that is such an amazing analogy. And interesting, you know, those are the, also the same people who would do who will read every review of a movie before they uh -huh. spend nine dollars to go and see it or whatever you know whatever it costs um that is incredible nine dollars that's a that's a minneapolis ticket price man <laughs> well i don't I'm, I'm not even i'm not even probably doing it justice uh, but yes <laughs> but yes yeah. um no so that's that's an amazing analogy and you know something you said there uh made me think i wonder if it's a displacement of confidence is what's happening, right? So if you're deciding which movie you want to watch or uh, which beer you want to buy or which car you're going to purchase, uh, you, you don't have this confidence that you have the information you need to make that decision. Uh -huh. Yet you get into this potentially even higher stakes environment where you do. So where does that come from? And uh, I think just as important question, right? How do we help people see that reality? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it comes from, it comes from fear, right? Because mm. one thing I found, because I've, I've been in the design consulting business for a, a really long time now, and we've worked with organizations of every description, I would say at this point, and the thing that has been striking is the amount of fear in absolutely every organization. People just, you know, Google did a great study a couple of years ago, Project Aristotle, a lot of people talk about it, where they looked at what makes teams functional. Okay. And they found out that it's, um, and they were looking for a formula, right? They're Google. They were looking for a <laughs> formula that they could replicate for this is what makes a great productive team. And they found out that it was something called psychological safety, which is that you can speak very candidly and be a human in front of your team. You can ask questions. You can say you don't know. You can be wrong. And, and you feel safe in doing that. You feel safe in all being honest with each other and saying, oh, you know, I think that idea isn't a great idea for these reasons. Or, hey, I'm going to offer this suggestion. You can tell me that it's wrong and I won't feel attacked. Um, and most people don't have that in mm. their businesses. They're always fronting, right? They're at work, like I have to seem like I know what I'm doing because everybody else is, is doing that. And so to admit you don't know something and you can't do any research until you admit you don't know, that is terrifying. And the, the higher you climb in an organization, the more authority you have, the less you want to make it seem like you don't have all the answers because you feel like, oh, if I admit I don't know something, then it's gonna be like showgirls and somebody's gonna be on the staircase behind <laughs> me with marble and it's all over and I'm I'm no longer head of product or something. You know, so I think that's where it comes from is this fear this fear of being exposed. It's kind of it's like imposter syndrome. It's like mm. 
extra imposter syndrome, but that's really it. So all of the objections I've heard to research, everything about we don't have time, we don't have budget, we don't have the right expertise in-house, all of that is smoke and mirrors to make up for the fact that asking questions is terrifying because you have to admit you don't know and you have to admit that the source of truth is outside your own personal authority. This is a fascinating track of conversation. Uh, and I would say far deeper on this particular facet of the topic than we've covered before. So the question is, you know, how do we work with these people? Because uh, because this isn't going to go away. And it's and it's I think it's also integral to being a human being. Mm -hmm. So how do we work with these people? How do we how do we help with that? Because let's face it, I mean, we want to. And yeah. uh, and I, I guess I should qualify that in saying, assuming anybody here who's listening doesn't have their own personal agenda they want to push, <laughs> but, but, but right. But they genuinely want to help yeah. because mm -hmm. you can't you can't be effective unless you're actually pure in your intentions as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what you do, and this is why uh, I, I think that the, the recent conversations around empathy and all of that have gone um, to maybe a, a little uh, far in terms of their emphasis where people say, oh, everybody just needs to <clears throat> empathize with the customer and everything's all sorted. But what it doesn't seem like designers um, and product people really think about is focusing all of that inward because it's the exact same process because it's not like customers are humans, but your coworkers are robots. I mean, maybe in five years, this will be true, but <laughs> everyone you work with, like you said, is a, is a human. And so you do the same things. You sit down with them because you don't change minds with data. You don't change minds by making an argument. And I think this can be a hard uh, insight for, for people who have and believe in data. They're like, I've got the data. All I have to do is bring you the data and I will change your mind. But all social science research indicates that if you bring contradictory data to people who have a false belief, it makes them dig in harder. Mm. So you will never win an argument by bringing all your facts. So what you do is you sit down with somebody and you ask them questions about their job. Like this is something we do in the research workshop that I run, which is shocking when people do this, who haven't thought to do this because they think, oh, research is something you do with people outside the organization. And it's like, all you've got to do is sit down with somebody and say, tell me about your job. Yes. Just start there, seriously. You go to somebody and the way you get them to open up is you say, I don't know as much as you do about your job. I know that my work somehow affects your job and I think your job's probably really hard. It's always it's always good to start there. Like, yeah. oh, your job sounds like it's really hard. Flattery takes you far. Yes. And uh, and so you sit down with them. And you're like, just walk me through your day yesterday or the last time you were at work and, and talk me through what you do and how you think about that and what are your barriers and, and what are your successes and who do you work with and how's that going? And if you just sit down with somebody and talk about their work even in your own um, organization, like this is something that consultants do coming in from the outside yeah. to just understand. But even you just take somebody for coffee. So you don't weird them out with a clipboard. You don't like show up at somebody's desk. <laughs> and you're like, hey, Lisa, I have a few questions for you. No, that'll freak them out. You have a comfortable, whatever makes it comfortable. You know, if it's a peer, you grab a cup of coffee. If it is somebody higher up in the organization, if you're in a hierarchical organization, then maybe you need to make it more official and you know, bring your clipboard. But you just ask them about their work, about what they hope to get out of it, about how you can support them. So it's a little bit different from like a pure ethnographic interview. But just by asking somebody about the mundane realities of their life and how they see the business, that will do two really important things. One, it will get them on your side and it will make them think that you're really smart to be asking them about their job. And also, it will give you real insight. So when you come to them, you don't just say, you have to believe me because I have the data. You say, I know that it's really important to you that we hit this delivery milestone in the second quarter. And let me tell you, I've learned some things that can help you in your work. You don't talk to them about how they're ignorant. 
you know, about how their product roadmap is based on false assumptions, you go to them and say, wow, your job seems hard. I can help you in your job. And all of a sudden, that will remove so many more roadblocks to, to understanding and, and you'll have a rapport because it's the emotional content that really is so much more important than factual content in human relationships. And it's if you're a research person, if you're especially if you come from the quantitative side, this just will make you so itchy because you're like, <laughs> ah, this is pandering. This is manipulation. But it's not. This is dealing with people. And so if you want to build allies and if you want to do something more evidence based, what you have to do is one cup of coffee at a time, sit down and say, even with people, you know, say, tell me about your work. How's that going? How can I help you? Like, who do you listen to? What do you what do you enjoy? And, you know, and I've, I've done this with internal teams like I love I did this collaborative research workshop and I love running it with internal teams because they think they know each other mm -hmm. and then they sit down and and they start and they do this this exercise and they come out of it and all of a sudden I have people who are like oh I've never met Chris from the marketing department and I realize we work on a lot of the same things or wow I, I found out that John and I are neighbors and our kids go to the same school and then all of a sudden there's so much more goodwill in that room. And it's that that helps teams be more honest with each other. And therefore, when you're being more honest and more candid, you're making better decisions and being more intentional in your design work. But it's it feels like a weird place to start if you're like, but we're all at work being rational and data-driven. And it's like, seriously, just have a, a cup of coffee with these people. Have empathy for your coworkers because that's way harder than having empathy for some unknown customer out there that you never have to fight with over the dishwasher in the company kitchen. <laughs> this is pure gold. And the there's multiple reasons why. It's literally just magic. So the first reason is I want to <laughs> go back to someone who is out in your area who I'm sure you know, Christina Woodkey. And mm -hmm. one of the things that she said on our podcast that – I swear I keep re-quoting her because she's a genius in every episode. But one of the things that she said that I quote, even in the talk that I've been giving recently, is that a lot of designers out there uh, saying they have uh, empathy for the customer, but none for the people they work with. Mm -hmm. And that and that's just so heavy, you know? And the other thing there too is, and I promise <laughs> that this conversation was not planted but the very same thing I've been talking about recently that it's been so important for me, and I'll back up just to tell a quick story. You know, across my career, for whatever reason, people somehow labeled me as uh, a person who could sell the ideas, the person who can get other people on board. And I've actually had purple refer people refer to it as Jedi mind trick in some way, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm not good at that at all. I'm not. I don't like the idea of marketing. I don't like the idea of selling. I think it, I, it always felt ingenuine or like yucky to uh -huh. me. But what I realized, the thing that I was good at is actually just tell me about what you do. Cause I actually don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I have no, uh, 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 presumptions about that. I actually don't know. But what I do know is if I can understand that better, I can help you be better, which is another point. It's just an interesting, like how all these things are connected. Uh, mm -hmm. It goes all the way back to the book, How to Win Friends, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. One of the quotes he has is he's like, hey, when I started fishing, you know, I love strawberries and cream. And when I started fishing, I realized that I probably shouldn't try to catch fish with strawberries and cream. Instead, all of a sudden I used worms, I used crickets, mm -hmm. and look at how all the fish bite. Of course you care about what's important to you. But that doesn't matter. It's what's important to the person you are trying to help. And mm -hmm. the reality of it is if the way you sell these ideas, the way you convince people or sell people on research and, uh, and something that you've learned is, yes, by gaining that trust, by showing them you actually give a shit about what's important to them and that you understand what their world is about. And then mm -hmm. two, helping them see how it benefits them first and everything else after that. Absolutely, and I just, um, I recently, so I recommend the Dale Carnegie book to people all the time. I refer to it as a foundational interaction design text. Wonderful. Right? Yeah, 
And uh, because it really is, it really is. So if you are, if you define yourself as a, an interaction designer, a content strategist, a business development person, anyone, like so much of what he said, and, and he did it with storytelling too. It's even like, just read the book uh, just for his style. Cause I see a lot of like direct marketing kind of copies his style, but he tells really concrete anecdotes, just like the one you told about the fish and the strawberries. And he talks about really wanting to solve people's real problems. And I think this is the difference between, you know, the kind of sales and marketing that makes you feel icky, which is like, I'm trying to get you to buy something that you don't really need. Right. And the kind of sales and marketing that really is, I want to help you solve a real problem that you have. And I think I have the solution, but I have to demonstrate that I understand you before you'll listen to me. Like that's the exchange. And so, yeah, so uh, Dale Carnegie, that real pragmatic approach is like, it's the same thing that we're talking about, about, you know, in order uh, to be interesting to somebody else, you've got to be interested in them. And yeah. I think that's really, that's really true. And that's the fundamental, like how, why on earth would you be a designer or somebody who creates like products and services or participates in that process if you are not interested in other people? Totally. Like that's fundamental. Like I get that maybe some technologists are interested in technology for its own sake. And sometimes that's really great if they're paired with somebody who is the person who's interested in people. Like not, I think one of the mistakes we make sometimes is that we want all of the qualities to inhere in one individual, you yeah. know, the so-called like unicorn person who's like, I'm a developer and a designer and an anthropologist because we haven't, you know, there's so many of the skills and I could go off about soft skills and hard skills for fucking ever. But, um, but it, it, it's really uh, the case. Nobody's taught how to collaborate with other people that you just assume that if you put three people in a room together, that they will somehow work together and not kill each other. I think this is the premise. <laughs> of, you know, it's like the Saw movies. It's like people took the Saw movies and said, yeah, that's how, uh, that's how a brainstorming session works. You just put them in there and you're like, you're not getting out until you dig the key out of somebody's head. Right. Oh. That's how we deal with collaboration. <laughs> we took a hard left turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's also a, a truth about people that if you, um, if you slightly traumatize them, they'll remember the material better. So, um, Set off yeah, a firecracker so in your research. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's how we treat collaboration. Um, but the reality is that having people in a room, as long as you have shared goals, having people in the room who disagree about the best approach, as long as they have shared goals, is much more productive than having a group of people who all have the same background and the same knowledge or who all like really want to pretend to agree with each other and not argue. And that's the difference between um, consensus and collaboration. With consensus, you're all aiming to like, okay, do we all like feel like we've all been heard? Mm -hmm. And collaboration is like, we have a goal that's not about how we feel. Like we wanna treat each other with respect and we definitely wanna feel like we're having a good time solving problems and working together. But the goal is not agreement. The goal is the best solution and often, arguing to get there to like the engineer is going to advocate for the technology and you get the person who's advocating for the customer, you get the person advocating for the business and you all kind of argue it out. And if you can do that in a way that's depersonalized because you've done your homework by getting to know each other as people before going into that kind of discussion, you'll have a much stronger solution at the end of it. I yeah completely agree. No surprise. I, I feel like that's all I do on these podcasts is sit around and say yeah. I completely agree with all the very smart people we talk with. <laughs> however, however, an an undercurrent of what you're saying I think uh, came up for me as you were describing this, which is there are people who want to use research for the wrong reasons. And I, I'll share a quick story. I actually had so this is a real situation that I was placed in where. Uh -huh. You know, we were working on this product. It happened to be a mobile app, and we were redesigning this thing. 
and uh, the person who was the technology director, let's just call it as that, mm-hmm. of this mobile app came to me and said, here's the things that I think we should do. Now, I, I was generally inclined to agree with this person. They sounded like better ideas than what the business was kind of pushing us to do. And I said, well, you know what we ought to do is we ought to run whatever I recommended, some usability tests and check out what it is now, maybe do a prototype check, you know, do kind of a comparison test, see which one actually shakes out. I have a feeling ours will, but we'll see what happens. And I remember the person said to me, yeah, how do we do that research to make sure that it shows that our way is the right way? And so Erica's covering her face right now because because I know that you've probably been in this situation, but you know the punchline of the joke for me was that this person said that, and I said, well, that's not why we're doing the research. We're doing the research to get the answer so that we can do the right thing because you have to still be open to the fact that there is another right solution, right? Research is not meant to be used to push your own agenda. It mm-hmm. should be used to inform the right decision. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, the thing you describe, I hear a lot. Uh, I have a friend who's a market researcher and sometimes gets put in that. She gets hired to run focus groups with uh, the implicit goal of finding some quotes that maybe support the vision mm-hmm. of the leadership or something. And that's that's why I think there's like a special place in hell for focus groups. And I think they're completely horrifying, destructive uh activity to to be doing for that reason and yeah and I think the first the um, the the way that I, I talk about research to to help with us say what if you're going into it uh, in good faith then you're very excited to be proven wrong very quickly if you go into the research you have to look into your heart and this is again why I think you need a collaborative approach and you have to work with people on teams with a a really clear shared goal is in your heart, you have to be open to being proven wrong Mm -hmm. and you cannot do any research until you've, you've figured that out and you've agreed on that and you say, we're not, we're really, we have a goal. We really want to learn We're we're coming at this uh, in good faith and it's, it's not, uh, to to have that good feeling. Because being right, like this is the thing I talk about all the time, being right is a really, really good feeling. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah. And, and being in a place of uncertainty, like having that kind of research mindset where um, you're just, you're never really certain and you're always asking questions. Like that's not how we were brought up. Like that's not how school goes for us. <laughs> There's right. not standardized testing and it's like, oh, Timmy, you asked very good questions on your standardized test. It's like, no, you got all the right answers. Mm-hmm. Good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you take that and all of a sudden you flip it to say, okay, the whole time you're going through school, you were trying to have all the right answers. You start to get a job and you're rewarded. Like I, I talk to people in organizations in which they still have this approach where good ideas quote unquote win. And you take that and you say, okay, everything you've been taught to value, your entire school life, your entire early career is wrong. Now you have to exist in a place where you're like, I know nothing. I'm just here to ask questions. But that takes so much confidence to come in and say, I don't know. And that makes me valuable. Yeah. No. Well, and, uh, you know, therein lies the fucking problem, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. No, I'm serious. And uh, it's funny because personal conversations that Joseph and I have had, one of the things that I said, I actually think this goes for culture. Maybe it's just Western culture, uh, but culture too, that, I, that I've observed it. People are more interested in winning than they are being right. So if I may, if I may offer an alteration uh-huh. uh, in addition to what you said, it's not actually even about being right. People like they want to feel like they won, regardless of whether or not it was the right or wrong outcome. Mm -hmm. They're not actually interested as interested in right as they probably Mm. either either want to be or say they are. They actually want to win. I I think you uh, you might be right about that. (laughs) And so that got super meta (laughs) very quickly, (laughs) very quickly. Uh, But you you understand what I'm saying, right? Like is that they. Is that uh, if you're in some cases, you know, 
which this whole conversation is getting very meta and extremely interesting as a result, is that in some cases people are doing research only to prove the points uh, that they believe will help them win, but aren't necessarily yeah. right for customers or the business, or worse yet, both. Right. Yeah. And you know, you know how researchers do this? Because this is where it gets it really uh, di difficult and peculiar is a lot of times if you if you bring um, researchers who have an academic background into a team, right? Academia is highly competitive. It is insanely competitive. And getting your PhD is like this like seven year slog and you come out of that and you go into industry and you wanna be the most right. Cause you're like, whoa, I have a degree in asking questions. And so this is a place where this doesn't get examined because people aren't gonna question. They're like, oh, you have a credential. So I'm not gonna question you. So a lot of times what happens isn't that the researcher, uh, it, it is kind of like what you say. It's not that the researcher wants to be proven right, but the researcher wants to win in terms of what is the right way to do research. And a lot of times what that leads to is organizations that do research to meet an academic standard instead of the actual business goal. Because yeah. it kind of doesn't matter how you get there. Like as long as you're fundamentally being ethical, the whole point of doing the kind of applied research we're talking about is to accomplish some business goal. Yeah. And so who cares if you wrote a report? Like this isn't a peer reviewed situation. Like who cares if you talked to a skewed sample of people if that gave you the information you need to improve your product. Totally. And, and so sometimes if you don't examine these assumptions about what the goals of research are, you could end up, yeah, one of two ways. You either end up where, oh, we're just gonna do the things that, that you know, make the egos, that soothe the egos of the executives, or we're gonna do the things that um, make people who come from an academic background feel like they're acting in accordance with their professional standards, even though that's a different set of values and standards than what you should be working within when you're doing applied research for a product or service. 100%. Yeah, there's definitely this some um, ceremony that exists around research uh, and that I personally think has contributed to the stigma around what user research is, which is a good point for me to use that as a segue to a different part of the conversation where, again, I can imagine people sitting here going like, this is all great. These are problems that we don't even need to solve yet. I'm just trying to convince my stakeholder they don't know enough about, mm -hmm. about our customers or our users, whatever you call them, or uh, I'm just trying to convince them that they should act on the information that mm -hmm. I've gathered, right? Maybe I have done all this research and I've, yeah. I've learned something from customers. How do I, two questions for you, Erica. A, how do I communicate that or share that with them? Mm -hmm. And then B, how do I get them to agree we should act on that? Mm -hmm. uh, so the first step is, uh, is something that uh, is weirdly often neglected is making sure that you have a clear shared goal. Because uh, I've even talked to people working in well-staffed research organizations at large companies. And I, I talked to them about like, why do you study particular things? And they just say, oh, my project manager comes to me and says, oh, learn more about this. And there's no really clear goal. So that is step one to make sure that the goal is clear and that the goal is shared. Yeah. So you don't even have to do anything as far as convincing anybody. It's like I said, you don't make the argument, you set the argument aside and you seek to understand. And by seeking to understand, you can persuade. And so what you do is you say, okay, I just wanna be really clear and you you appeal to their expertise. Yeah. And you say, I wanna know, like my work supports your vision. Say if you're talking to the leadership and you say, what's our goal? Why is that our goal? What, what are our priorities? What are your concerns? What do you think might go wrong? And and once you get a sense of really understanding, because sometimes you might go through that and think uh, and find out and uncover, oh, we don't have one clear goal. Or perhaps there are two goals that are mutually exclusive that everyone's been talking about as though you can meet both. And it's just through having that conversation. And so, so first you say, do we have a goal? Like, 
you, you walk through the process of making sure, okay, we have a clear goal. Everybody in the room has the same understanding. This is our goal. Yeah. Then you say, okay, what do we need to know to accomplish that goal? And everybody can have that conversation. And then you say, okay, what do we actually know? And if somebody makes an assertion, then you say, well, what's the basis for that assertion? Because what we're really, we're really trying to shift the conversation and design from research and design as two separate things, because that's always a loser, because it always makes it sound like you can do design without doing research, which yeah. you can. And we're talking more about evidence-based design and evidence-based decisions. Because it's like, okay, you want to make a decision, what do you need to know in order to make that decision? And that helps uh, clarify and prioritize your research work. Because a lot of times organizations try it. They're like, okay, we'll try this talking to people thing. I'll indulge you. But then because they don't have a clear business goal, then they don't have a clear research goal and they don't have a path to using what they've learned or yeah. interpreting what they've learned because they haven't established those first clear steps. Yes, yes, dynamite. Everything you just said, dynamite. So again, this is not sexy work, but asking people, what is it that we're trying to do? Um, and I kind of just want to share this with you more for your reaction to this because uh -huh. you're on this this thing. So I've always talked to people about setting up goals in a way that is very, very similar to OKRs for those that are familiar with that, uh -huh. right? So there's three parts to this goal. The first one is the goal statement. This is really easy to get at. You say, what is it we're trying to do? Somebody's going to have an answer for that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's either going to be a well-thought answer or a not, and that's fine. But the second piece uh, we call success indicators. Mm -hmm. And those are the things, that's the behavior that you will see, hear, feel, whether or not you're meeting that goal. And then the third part is metrics. And those should be self-explanatory if you've done parts one and two, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that's such a big deal and why I literally hammer people on this uh, and whether or not they've set these up is because that those success indicators, that behavior, that's the world we say we thrive in, uh -huh. which should drive every research question we have, which should drive every design or product or feature decision we make to help people in their own language, being the language of a business, help them understand why we're doing the things we're doing and how it directly benefits them. Uh -huh. Yeah. All right, yeah. great. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But the, the problem is that we're still operating in the world of human beings who yeah. are super uncomfortable having direct conversations with one another about these things. No, and I, and I actually think that that's a super important point to bring in underlying with this because you were talking about having these conversations and you kind of have to tread lightly. I think... Um, you know, let me know what you think on this. I, I feel like the most important thing there is to just say, when you're pushing, when you're pushing the line on that and saying, I don't know if that's right. And I don't know if that's right, because I want to make sure it's right for the thing you're trying to do. Like, I feel like that's the most important part of mm -hmm. pushing back almost, uh, for lack of a better term, passive aggressively on that. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I'm not sure that's right, only because you told me you wanted to do X. Uh -huh. And this sounds a little bit like why. So I would, I just want to make sure it's right for you. Uh -huh. You know, this is where the whole Dale Carnegie thing comes back in. It's yeah. like when you are going to push back, make sure it literally is in the best interest of them. Uh -huh. Still with the with the guise of what's best for the customer. Yeah, and and we come in. I mean, I mean, we have a real advantage coming in. Was one because we come in from the outside, and two, our company name is Mule. Right. So you don't hire us to say, oh, I've just hired these people who will agree with me and never push back. They're called mule. Yeah, that's that's sort of built into our brand that really works to help set an expectation where we say, well, we're going to come in and we're going to ask hard questions. And that's why you bring us in, because we don't have to tread as lightly like we'll be respectful of course but we'll bring it back it's not even about what's good for the customer it's about you've hired us to help you meet some goal some business goal some product goal 
And so we'll bring everything back to that because it might be the case, like there are plenty of things that are great for the customer and bad for the business. And that's why this overemphasis, this idea that, oh, if you do customer research, that's all you need to understand. I have a long line of products I'm super bitter about that got shut down because I love them. They were beautifully designed from a customer perspective, but the business model didn't hook up. Yeah. And that's doing a disservice. Like if you as a designer are uninterested in the business, a couple of things happen. One, you're either going to design a beautiful, unsustainable product that's going to entice and then disappoint customers when yeah. it's ultimately folded because it's unsustainable, or you're going to create something that ends up being exploited and does terrible things to the people you were designing for because you thought you were designing something to really help them out, but it turns out you were actually designing a casino. So, <laughs> so if you're a designer, you have to understand who benefits yeah. from your design decisions or else you could just be a tool of some evil capitalists. Yeah, no, uh, yes, I, I, I'm literally like, somewhat speechless because i don't even know how to react to that that's how absolutely accurate i think that that is um and it's one of these things where so i'll just be honest with you the first thing that popped into my mind as you were as you were describing everything that you were is that as a designer sometimes you just need to say get the fuck over yourself just because you have an agenda on what you think is right it might not be right for mm -hmm. everyone just with everything in life there must be a balance there yeah. must be a balance. If it only serves business needs, it sucks and nobody wants it. If it only serves customer or user needs, then it's great for them and makes no money. And <laughs> perhaps in some of your embittered products in the past, live is only six to 18 months or whatever that is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very extremely bitter about Virgin America right now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Did I miss something? Yeah. What happened with Virgin America? What? Alaska Airlines bought them and is shutting them down. What? I didn't know about what? this. Whoa, yeah. You must not be, I don't know if uh, Minneapolis is on a, a Virgin Hub or whatever. No. Yeah, so Virgin had the best, like, definitely the best web experience of any airline. They had this whole brand, this whole customer experience on the airplane. But the problem is that's not how the airline business works. And so Alaska made, made way more money. And like there was also, they were, it was tough for them to get a com in a competitive position in the various hubs and stuff. So there's all like there's airline politics. I don't really understand, but the end result is that they had what I felt was the best customer experience among American airlines. And of course we're in this awful, like non-competitive environment here too, mm. but they were not competitive. So the business value of user experience is a lie. There is no business value of customer experience. There may be in certain markets for certain things, but if you're talking about air airlines are a great example, you choose a flight based on, well, do you have a loyalty relationship with them? I mean, yeah, you could talk to Jared Spool about United for like, you could probably do a 90 hour straight podcast on that. <laughs> right? While he's waiting for a United flight, actually. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so real. Um, but other than that, it's like, it's like, is it a direct flight? Is it cheap? You know, does it get, is it good times? And you'll suck up a lot of customer experience uh, issues for that in that particular business. So like, there's no return on investment for design. There's no return on investment for customer experience. It all depends on the market. So you can't even just understand the business. You have to look at the whole thing. You have to know how do people behave? How do they make their decisions? What are their habits? You have to know what has to happen for our particular business model to work. And you have to look at the whole competitive landscape. And it's not that hard. I mean, that's why I wrote such a tiny little book was to be like, you really just have to ask some basic questions. But the problem is that th there are a lot of businesses that like it's too terrifying to ask some of these questions because it cuts to the fundamentals. Like there's mm. like, all these myths that a business operates on. Um, and uh, I'll, you know, a lot of things that they do because well, that's the way they do things and they don't really ever examine like, should we be doing this? Is this what we really intend to do? Or is it just too terrifying to go back to first principles? Yeah. And, you know, I so the salient point of everything you just 
brought to light there for me was really recognize the situation you're in. As a, so you can be doing the same job, UX designer, service uh-huh. designer, researcher, doesn't matter, in an industry that is relatively, for lack of a better word, commoditized. Uh-huh. Understand your place in that and either choose to serve that or find a different job. And, and, and both of those options are actually completely fine and admirable yeah. and respectable, right? But totally. don't but don't push the boulder uphill when like don't make your life harder than it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. And this like yeah, a lot of times um you know people we've worked with in, in various organizations see, seem to want to fight that. Right? We we come to them with the choice about you know you could do this and and support what you're, what you're doing with open eyes or you could go get another job and they could they kind of fight for their sort of miserable interpretation of the situation. <laughs> Like no, I I want I want you to validate my my misery as opposed to saying you know what you don't have to care so much like the idea that in some circumstances like if you're showing up for the paycheck that you can kind of phone it in yeah and it's okay it's like no I've got to be passionate about something I actually hate and it's like why yeah no if that's yeah if that's the situation you're in and you're cool with that then yeah. let it be that or yeah, let it be a job. Exactly. Or if it's if it's another place that you want to, you know, uh, harness that passion and put it towards something, then find that place. But realize that they don't they they won't always be the same place. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what works, what works in one context. I mean, it's so funny, like all the things that we talk about as designers about how customers operate in the world somehow it's too terrifying to translate those back to uh, the business organization, right? It's like, same thing. People are lazy, forgetful creatures of <laughs> habit. Everybody works on habit. Everybody's got fear. Everybody wants, you know, as you said, to be like loved and respected by their coworkers. You know, people worry about being liked too much. Like yeah. this is particularly a problem for women. And it's oh. like, why? Like, hang out with your friends who like you and go to work and do your job and worry about being effective in your job yeah. and like having a certain rapport. And, and like I said, like the reason you talk to people is to create these shared goals and this sense of shared mission, but like you don't have to win Miss Congeniality right. to have that. Um, and so it really is having this clarity about what are, what are your goals in working on any project with any given team? Um, what are your organization's business goals? What are the goals of the people you're trying to like attract as customers out in the world? And just ha- like figure out how those line up. And it doesn't actually take that much time, but people don't do it yeah. because it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then when you do that stuff too, what happens is it really helps you prioritize mm-hmm. which hill you should die on, right? Yeah. Uh, because you can say, well, this is something I can get wrapped around the axle on and, uh, and go and go talk with my friends and get them all worked up into a tizzy and tell them how shitty my coworkers and my company is. Or you can say, actually, this is not that big of a deal, but the next hill, that's one that's a big deal for our customers and our business. And I'm going to spend time fighting on that one. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Erica, I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> this has been, I, I am certain we can talk for another hour on these things uh, quite easily. But I want to be respectful of your time. And before we kind of round it out, I'm just curious, is there anything that you would like to share with folks who are listening to the podcast? Uh, let's see. Uh, because I am a tremendous masochist, I have written a second small book and strangely small books are still like writing is a writing's a thing man but i'm uh so i've written this <laughs> i don't even know what to say at this point except like hey i've passed the rubicon and the book is in the hands of the fine people at a book apart but i've written another book that's called conversational design hmm. and it's about using you know we've had this whole conversation it's been super fun it's not about a conversational interface like it's not about like talking to your refrigerator or anything like that. (laughs) It's about using human conversation as a model for interaction design, because this is how we interact with each other. And there are a lot of lessons to make human-centered products and services based on how looking closely at how people interact with each other. So language is important to that. But then there are many other features of what makes a functional interaction 
that uh, that we can look at. So um, yeah, it's called conversational design. It's a nice tomato soup color, very comforting, and it's uh, it's going to be out in a, in a little bit from a book apart. Wonderful. Uh, and who can deny a uh, very comforting tomato soup color? I think all of us can pretty much agree and get behind that. Unfortunately, yes. uh, maybe not everybody loves tomato soup, but if uh, if you don't, then I think you're wrong anyway. Um, that sounds like an awesome book. And of course, we can find you at Mule Design and on Twitter. You're pretty prolific and, uh, and active on there, at least as far as I have seen. Anything else you'd like to share? Uh... That's it. No, no, that's it. Yeah, all the time I've been on Twitter was all those times I was not actually working on my book. So that's a, that's true of every author. But uh, no, no, this has been a, a fantastic uh, conversation. And I just, yeah, I encourage everybody to just ask questions because it's so simple and so powerful. I love it. And actually that note, one of the things I'm trying to start with the end of our conversations and all of our guests on the podcast is something I personally use when I interview people for a job. And so I say, if I had temporary amnesia, and I forgot everything we talked about, there was one thing you wanted to make sure I remembered. What would you think that should be? Don't treat brainstorming sessions like an episode of Saw where you need to claw the key out of one of your teammates' brains. Of course. <laughs> and of course. that's it. And that's it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, what a wonderful conversation we've had with Erica Hall, uh, co-founder at Mule Design, author of Just Enough Research and the upcoming book, Conversational Design. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Erica, thank you so much for joining us this time. Thank you, Zach. It's been fantastic. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram, AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.